Welcome to the Future of Australia podcast, where your host, Derek Stewart, interviews the entrepreneurs and founders running the 100 fastest growing new businesses in Australia. On episode 54, I speak with Robbie Turner, founder and CEO of the Axon Property Group. We discuss why he joined the military at 17 years old, despite never thinking about joining while growing up, how 24 years in the Defence Forces flew by, including time in the Special Forces running counter-terrorism and becoming an officer, humbling himself, taking a basic job in a friend's real estate company, doing follow-up phone calls before their promotional events, why so many people struggle to re-enter civilian life no matter their skill set. We talk about the defining moment that started him on his journey to running his own property company specifically for the defence community, how he's doubling the number of properties bought every year for clients and becoming one of the fastest growing new businesses in Australia. If you are looking for a veteran-owned and operated company working to empower the ADF community to secure their financial future through education, coaching and mentoring in the property sector, check out axonproperty.com.au. That's A-X-O-N. P-R-O-P-E-R-T-Y dot com dot A-U. So I'm here with Robbie Turner, the founder and CEO of the Axon Property Group. Welcome to the podcast. G'day, Derek. Thanks very much for having us on, mate. Looking forward to this. Excellent. So can you tell us what were you doing before you started Axon Property Group? What did you study? What type of organizations were you working in? Yeah, so I did. I, it's a bit, bit of a story, if you don't mind me sharing. So I joined the army at 17 and then did 24 years serving my country. So I did half my career as a, as a soldier. And then I got the, got the chance in 2013 to commission across to being an officer. So it's almost like I split my career in half. Um, and then after, yeah, 24 years after I, after I got out, I was actually poached from the military by another ex-defense guy who was running a similar property firm. And he's like, hey, Robbie, I know you've been a successful special forces officer. I know you're right into the property market. About a year ago, I started my own property firm. I want to grow it. Would you consider sort of getting out of the military and coming to join me? And the first thing I thought of, Derek, I went, hmm, I'd been taken advantage of by property spruikers because, you know, it's like I did five combat trips away, East Timor, Afghanistan, Solomon Islands, and a combination of all three. And I basically go over there, get a, get a bunch of money if you come back alive, thankfully, and go and like invest it in houses. And I, I was effectively effectively doing that. So that's where I got my my interest into the housing market. I'd been taken advantage of by some property spruikers, and I was like, mate, I'm not a salesman. I'm not a used car salesman. I grew up in the country. I've, you know, I've got better values than that. You know, you think about it when you think about solicitor, you think about doctor. When you think about property spruiker, you think about used car salesman. Like that's the word <laughs> association. Yeah. So I, I wasn't really into it at first, but then when he got me to transition from the military and I went and did a bit of on-the-job training, Derek, and he showed me what actually goes into how to run a property business, I was like, wow, this is I've now found my new calling. I literally went down to Canberra, put my discharge in and got out about six months later. So I actually, in answer to your question, mate, I worked with him for the better part of four years and effectively, you know, it was interesting. I was running Australia's international counterterrorism program working in a cell down in Canberra, eye scans, hand scans, you know, in a, in a, in a highly specialised environment. And then I got out of the military and that was as a fifth-year major. And then I got out of, out of the military and I'm like ringing people going, hi, Derek, it's Robbie here. I'm just confirming whether you're coming to our seminar tomorrow night and do you have any dietary requirements? So it was a real <laughs> lesson in humility, if I can say that, that, you know, and I'm putting uh, papers on people's desks and making sure the chairs are tucked in properly. So, yeah, it was a really... I. I I have um, since separated from working with that gentleman and him and I don't get on anymore. Like we've, we've parted ways, but I've said it on plenty of forums before, including my own podcast. I do owe him a lot. He gave me a chance when you join the military at 17 and get out at 41. It's a huge part of one's life. I'm sure you'll agree. So, I, you know, he he mentored me and gave me a, a soft landing for one of a better term, Derek, where I could actually go and find my new, you know, self out of, out, out of the military. So yeah, mate, that's uh, that's that's what I was doing beforehand. So you joined the the military at seventeen, but what age would you say you decided that you wanted? You know, eight years old, twelve years old, sixteen. At what point did you decide you wanted to do that again? Was it a childhood thing? Was it a year before you didn't know what to do? Were your family suggesting it? When did you actually sort of make the decision? 
both of my grandfather, so my dad did not do the Vietnam War. He 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 side sidestepped subscription. So in my immediate family and upbringing, there was no military background. I didn't used to play shoot 'em ups and cowboy Indians in the in the schoolyard. It wasn't wasn't my thing. Grew up in a small country town called Port Pirie in South Australia, three three or so hours drive north of Adelaide. Played footy when I was younger, just all that sort of stuff. Finish finish year twelve. I had no no expectation to join the military whatsoever, but I, I knew I knew that I didn't want to stay in that small town. There was just something in me. I loved going down to Adelaide once a year. We'd have a family trip to go down there. I loved the bright lights. I loved seeing all the houses. I loved seeing the city. I just you know that was I loved being around that that sort of stuff. And when I finished year twelve in nineteen eighty nine, my dear late grandmother and my mum. Uh, basically put me in the back of the car and said, Robbie, we're driving down to Adelaide and we're going to go and find you a job. And I was like, okay, this is interesting. I was only 16 at this stage. <laughs> um, so, because my birthday is so late in the year, I was, I was only 16 when I finished year 12. And then, yeah, next thing I knew, Derek, I was in the recruiting office for the Army, Navy and Air Force filling out paperwork and looking at, you know, videos. Videos back in 1989 were not that flash, by the way. Clearly, I wasn't doing any research on the internet. And I just I filled out forms for the Army, Navy, and Air Force. And the Army was just the first one to get back to me. And a couple of weeks later, I was very excited. And mum was extremely, you know, proud and excited as well. I, I got chucked on a bus and went down to Adelaide for some aptitude and fitness testing. But past all that, no, no dramas at all. I think the, the minimum standard of getting the army is like year nine and you know, 20 push-ups or whatever. And I, I was a fair bit further down the road than that. And yeah, mate, um, six weeks later, I was at uh, Kapuka doing basic training, getting my head shaved. <laughs> That's how I joined. And, and so, like, again, you didn't even know that you were going to head towards that. It was just that's what was available in Adelaide. There was a recruitment office. You, you liked the idea of travel. So I guess that was the main selling point. Did you have any doubts at all of you're young? It, it's so different away from home, away from you know, what you're used to or what your family's sort of done? Oh, mate, I was incredibly homesick when I left. Absolutely, I was. Mum, two uh, two sisters and dad at home. Mum used to go or come to the come to the sports with me all the time. I learned to grow up pretty quickly because I had I was reasonably good at AFL football, so I was playing first grade country footy, and I'm sure you know what you know the the toughness and hardness of country <laughs> footy. I was 15 years old when I first played, started playing then. So, as a 15 year old, you grow up really fast when you're being hit against sort of um, and playing against hard bodied able men. So I, I sort of I knew how to handle myself a little bit from that sort of perspective. But we really went, and, I, and therefore, as a 17-year-old, I was rather cocky and I was outspoken. And there, and even though dad was incredibly hard on me, when I got into the military, I've actually worked out my dad was rather soft on me compared <laughs> to the standards that had to come my way being in the military. And it was about three weeks after being at Kapuka for the first time, I was on the phone to my mum crying, wondering why I was here and can you take me back home and this place is not for me and I'm not handling it and I'm homesick and she encouraged me to stay and I eventually got my shit together and I actually really, really loved it by the end and I, I loved being in the military and it has defined my life and it still does to a certain degree. And what's the sort of drop-off point for most people? Is it they'll do three to five years of sort of training or a degree and then they put in their three to five years kind of commensurate with that and then at that point they exit do a lot i imagine drop out early on but the ones who stay do tend to stay for decades or what have you sort of seen and and when did you know that you or realize you were going to be there for decades and not just the, the sort of the minimum yeah mate, yeah, great question i remember it has waxed and waned over the years like even the the duration of basic training was three months when i did it i actually had the opportunity to go back there some 10 years later and be an instructor which i loved the program was only six weeks then, so from three. So, yeah, and, and I understand it's back to like three months now or something. So when I joined, mate, you had to sign on for four years. So you were effectively signing on for four years, and unless there was a mental or physical or emotional, like real emotional reason, not just crying to your mum because <laughs> you just can't hack it, of like a proper reason that you wouldn't be able to stay, you were you signed on for, for four years. And yes, certainly a lot of people then at the end of that four-year period, you just went into what was called OEE, which is open-ended engagement. And I sort of went on to that. And then the next part of your question, I had no idea how long I was going to stay for. I probably sort of knew I'd do about 10 years or so, but mate, time flew and I got right into it and I, I was reasonably successful in my military career. And I felt like I blinked my eyes a half a dozen times and I was 41 years old and I'd done 20 plus years. It was interesting. I'd 
I didn't know that I was going to get out at that time, but my desk down in Canberra was opposite the little kitchen. And I saw a couple of old SAS uh, majors. I was working down at Special Ops headquarters. They hadn't seen each other for a number of years. And I overheard an interesting conversation with them. They're like, oh, Bill and Fred, haven't seen you for ages. What are you doing now? They're like, oh, buddy, you wouldn't believe it. I've done 30 years in the SAS and I'm trying to find a job on the outside. But now I've had to come back to the army and I'm doing some reserve time, some continuous full-time service. And I'm like, shit, these guys are like at the top of their game, been doing, you know, amazingly high-level, complex, dangerous tasks and been extremely successful doing it as I was doing some of that as well bouncing in and out of you know Afghanistan PNG and other uh, other areas of Asia as these guys were and they can't find a job on the outside no one wants them and it was literally a number of weeks after is my recollection that I got the phone call from that guy saying hey would you like to come and join my firm so yeah it's funny how the sort of the world turns there that who knows I might have I might have still been in right now I've been out for nine years now and I'll turn 50 later this year. So who knows? Yeah. And what do you think that is? Is it a, a lack of understanding in, like we could say, the corporate world where they don't understand and necessarily respect the militarised arm of government? Because people move between government and private, private and government, although they're, they're sort of somewhat separate worlds, the sort of, you know, um, public sector, sort of bureaucrat types. But, but why do you think someone who's gone through training physically, you know, um, intellectually difficult sort of task, high stress, the highest stake part, but then, you know, are there not transferable skills that, you know, the corporate sector sees? Is it a lack of a network? Is it, what, what were those barriers that you saw in the, yourself and those around you in kind of going into civilian life post ADF and, you know, having a, you know, like a sort of a good quality office role or, yeah. you know, um, white collar role? I think it's a common, so every, everybody's different in the first instance. That's my blanket answer to that. And every environment that that different person goes into is going to be a different circumstance for them. And I hate answering like that, but that that's just, it, it is what it is. But this is what it comes down to. It's, it's not about the transferable skills. It's a different culture in the real world. In the military, when your boss says, everyone, everyone stand up and jump, everyone stands up and jumps. In an office environment, when your boss says, everyone stand up and jump, a few people might get up, but not everyone will. And you can see that there's a different, it's a, it's a very simplistic analogy I'm using, but that's like, it's the, it's the will to be there. It's the determination and drive and teamwork and the win at all cost mindset that one must have in the military. That doesn't exist in the corporate culture or very, very rarely. So it's the whole fish out of water analogy that people just don't feel, it's just my... I never experienced it because I went to go and work with a guy who was ex-military and he created an ex-military culture in that firm. And myself and the now 10 other veterans that work here with me in Axon, I've certainly created that for myself as well. And I've spoken to many, many other people and I've even done a podcast with a, the, the National Psychology Officer of Soldier on Australia where he talks about this sort of fish out of water element. It's the hard body defence versus soft body civilian and that's not being geography or any in any way, but when a hard body meets a soft body, it doesn't quite fit in a gel properly. So, yeah, it's just it's just a very when you join the services and you effectively sign a check to the value up to including your life, and you're willing to get your head shaved and go away from home and work in arduous conditions and face dangerous stuff, you're just a different person. You you know, and and having gone to gone to Kapuka and and transformed young men and women into soldiers. And then I went to Duntroo many years ago as a leadership instructor there and did the same thing. There's a transformation that people go through, which is almost irreversible. And therefore we're different people. Yeah. What would you say are the top sort of most common pathways, I guess, like so some stay or come back, like those ones you mentioned. Mm. Do some, I imagine, go into sort of defence contracting type? Like I guess that's the most similar. Or do some um, go into self-employment? You know, maybe they, they do a trade or their own sort of business yeah veteran entrepreneurship trades we're talking about security work prison officer work driving trucks Mm -hmm. in the mines is a big one as well the mining mining sectors pretty simply yeah so that's i'd say that's that's probably the top five or six sectors that people go and work in yeah and so you mentioned as well while you were still part of of the armed forces that you had been sort of taken in by some property spruikers some investments didn't work was that like Mm. you were away from it so you didn't really have a context of they say oh this city's good to buy a house in you're not even in australia nine months of the year so you don't even know or was it just kind of you weren't educated or, or other people around you were also 
naive about kind of investing or real estate? Or what, what was that sort of journey and story like? I look back at a, a combination of all of those. So that was, a, that was a well thought out question. I was trying to undertake something that I didn't know everything about. And I was arrogant and ignorant in the way <laughs> whereby I didn't think I needed anyone's help. I'm like, I'm a special forces officer. I can do my own research. No one's going to take advantage of me. I can sort my own stuff out. Like, you know, I don't need anybody's help. And now I look at that on the other side and I see so many people that first engage with us. So as a property coach now, many, many, many years later, and our business revolves around the education, the coaching, the mentoring, the supporting someone who wants to delve into the property market, a topic that none of us were taught at school still to this day, I understand. Why would anyone want to try and be successful? How does anyone think they're going to be successful in the, the trappings of the property market if they don't have someone coaching and mentoring and educating them? So I guess if I had have reached out and found a coach and effectively received the information from property sprookers in some of the circumstances you described and then handed it over to my coach and asked them to have a non-emotive third-party observation of what I was doing, I would not have bought two or three of those properties that I did that I did very, very poorly in. I'm not blaming the property sprookers for doing it because I'm an adult. I made my own decisions. I signed the contracts. I thought I knew what I was doing, but hindsight's a wonderful thing. And I'm being a hindsight hero right now, as, as ScoMo <laughs> calls them, that, yeah, don't try and do something as important as navigate your way through the property market by yourself or do so at your peril. And I'm not wishing ill on anyone trying to do it, but the likelihood of them being successful is a lot lower unless I've got some sort of assistance. And it's interesting too, because you, you came from an environment which is, you know, essentially the biggest training organisation in Australia, right? Taking in a heap of 16, 17, 18-year-olds as, you know, as young and fresh as possible and training them, you know, again, consistently and for decades. So you're sort of surrounded by training and systems and expertise. But then when you take it in a different context, like property investing, you think, oh, I don't need any training. I'll, you know, just jump in and, and sort of and figure it out. How so hard can it be? I've, yeah. lived, I've lived in a house my whole life. I know how to buy one. And sure, buying a house for yourself is one thing, but building a portfolio and making money from the property market is a lie, is another thing. You know, I see it every every couple of months. You see it on Today, Tonight, or a current affair. There's a young family standing out the front of a house with a half-built house and the builder's gone under and it's a total shit fight. And I, I've got like right shoulder, left shoulder. My right <laughs> shoulder ones, I feel terribly sorry for those, those families that have now, you know, potentially lost a lot or lost everything. But my left shoulder's like, I bet they did it by themselves. I bet they just wanted to do it on the cheap. They found the cheapest builder on the internet. They just, you know, they didn't read the fine print. You know, they didn't know the landscaping and the fencing and all the driveway is not included in a fixed price contract. So it's just all that stuff. So, yeah, I, I watched that stuff with a wry smile on my face. And even every time a defence member or one of our clients come to us now and they come to us and they've made a mistake in their past, all of them say without fail, they're like, I wish I had met you guys before I bought that first property. As Conor McGregor says, when he loses another fight, you win or you learn. Mm. I'm sure he's still learning, <laughs> but you, you do. You either win or, or you learn, but yeah, everyone gets your experience from somewhere. And so you, you sort of got that lifeline to exit and work, even though it was sort of a humble entry-level sort of role, learn the real estate game. At yeah. what point did you realize you wanted to start your own business and then how did you sort of decide? And then what was it like in the first six or 12 months once you actually went out on your own? Yeah, the business actually started because of Tinder. So not not with me and my wife, by the way. <laughs> Unfortunately, the business owner of that other firm uh, went through a pretty horrible marriage breakup and he was with that lady for a very long time and he discovered Tinder on the back end of that because it, was, it wasn't around beforehand. And we were down at a business conference in Sydney and I was very grateful that he used to, you know, I was his general manager then and him and I'd go down and we'd spitball ideas and we'd bounce, you know, had two of us there consuming all the information that was coming our way. At the end of the conference, the, 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 they used to do this all the time. Every three months, they're like, all right, cool. Here we go with this exercise, handing out a piece of paper. It says at the top of the page, it's three years from now, my business is dot, 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 dot. And you've got... 10 minutes to sit there and pour your heart out, Derek, and basically write and visualize through head and hand and heart what the business is going to look like in three years' time. And he tapped me on the inside of the league. He goes, mate, I'm going outside on Tinder. You've, you've got this. 
So I looked around and I'm now sitting in a room of 300 other entrepreneurs. All right, go, 10 minutes, go. 300, 300 entrepreneurs, they're pouring their hearts out through their, their head and their hand, writing on this sheet of paper about what their business is going to look like in three years' time. And my boss is outside on Tinder. I'm like, you know what? I'm going to write what my business might look like in three years' time. So I did. <laughs> I've still got that piece of paper to this day. So I guess that was the start of us diverging. There's many, many other events that occurred, which I'm not publicizing. But but what did you write on that piece of paper? Like at that point, what was your three-year sort of plan? Was it to run your own thing? Was it to Yes, yes, yeah. yes. I wrote, I wrote a I wrote a business model plan for if, if I was to gonna do it myself one day. It was the first time I'd ever even thought about it. I'm an extremely loyal person, as demonstrated, you know, for decades beforehand. And for me to be even thinking about, I felt like I was writing a, a cheating letter. Like, you know, I was, I was writing a letter behind my behind my par- partner's back. But that's the circumstance that I got placed in. And that's what allowed, you know, that it that facilitated me to do it that way. So, yeah, I obviously disclosed that to him a number of months later. And that was the very fast decline of our sort of, you know, as soon as he knew that I was going to do it one day, I was out the door pretty quickly. So that, yeah, that's certainly... I told we were having a chat about it in late February 2017. And I said, look, I'm not going anywhere. He's like, no, he's like, no, 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 do not go. Like, I need you to stay. You're the engine room of this business. The clients love you. All the staff love you. Like, you know, just, just, you know, please, Robbie, don't come. I was like, bro, I'm not going anywhere. I'm just letting you know that I'm thinking about it, that one day, I, maybe it's in collaboration with you. One day I'd like to be able to do something like this is what you're doing. Because he didn't get out as a special forces major, he, he I think he got out as a major, but he was like he was a respectfully, ladies and gentlemen, mm. hear this. He was a regular army mm. major, you know, the, the called special forces for a reason. I wanted to have a go at doing that as well, and then yeah, sure as shit, in true erratic behaviour style, the next morning he came in and he's like, "Robbie, into my office." I'm like, "All right, I didn't think I was in the military anymore, but okay." <laughs> As, hey, you know that uh, conversation we had yet? Yeah, still standing up, by the way. I hadn't even put his bag down. I said, yeah, I remember. He goes, grab your shit and get out. Wow. I was like, what? He goes, you heard me. Grab your, If you're going, you're effing leaving now. And I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. I, like, I had not prepared for this, right? Like, zero. This is like, it's just a just some thoughts, some some brainstorming on a paper. He's like, mate, you and literally frog, me out, frog, frog march me out. Wow. And that's when I went home and I'm like, I was calling my wife on the phone. I'm like, actually, uh, we got married later that year. So, yes, we had been married. It was our first first year of marriage. And I said, uh, hey, babe, you know that, you know, that, you know, those chats we were having about maybe starting a business one day? She's like, yeah. She's, I said, we need to start that tomorrow. <laughs> she's like, what? <laughs> I said, yeah. Old mate just kicked me out. So we literally came, went home. We bought a $50 whiteboard off Gumtree, got it delivered the next day and mm-hmm. sat down and started writing out a business plan and our business model. And it started from there. And it's funny or ironic, I suppose, is encouraging these hundreds of uh, clients to follow their dreams. But then when you want to follow your dream, suddenly it's sort of uh, inconvenient to him and it's sort of the end of that. And and, and so yeah. you, you've uh, in some ways, you know, been sort of prompted out on your own by, by the circumstances. But what was the actual you know, was it easy? You already had a network and you knew the process was a lot harder under your own brand by yourself versus under someone else's kind of yeah. entity? We, when I say we, in that other firm, we had about 6,000 people on our Facebook page at that time. Not a lot, but enough. They weren't specifically helping out defence members, although with the addition of me to the team and the network I brought, we sort of were, were doing a bit of half-half. If I can use the term half-pregnant, we were uh, marketing and helping out civilian clients and marketing and helping out defence clients as well. Um, we weren't doing Zoom calls or Facebook lives or like none of that, none of that stuff existed back in, you know, 2015, 2016, et cetera. So, it was, you know, it was all seminar-based stuff, a little bit of online stuff, but yeah, we sort of got to that point. And when you've got five or 6,000 people on your database and you're regularly engaging with them through social media, I actually thought it was going to be quite easy because that's I was used to getting that feedback and that interaction but when you start a Facebook page and there's one person on that page and that's you and you literally started from the ground up, it was it was incredibly, it was a lot harder than what I thought. And the guys and girls that are in the office right now, I say to them, if any time you guys want to go and have a crack and go and start your own business, I am not going to stand in your way. You go do that. As all of you have heard me talk about before and as is well documented, 
you'll take not two steps back, you'll take 20 steps back and then you'll eventually start to take one foot forward, you know, in the years and years to come. So yeah, going from working in a very established and pretty successful business to starting your own at the drop of a hat with zero notice, Derek was a huge step backwards for us. And Tamara it used all of our savings. We went all the way back to zero. We had had to sustain our own our own income for many, many, many months, and you know, then start to find a heap of clients. And luckily, there were a bunch of my friends that I brought to that other business that were looking for properties anyway. So effectively, we just started to be able to provide services to family and friends straight away. You know, that's that's the only way you can do it. You can't break out into the into the public. As a business that started yesterday, no one's going to start working with you straight away. We, you know, we needed to get some runs on the board throughout the remainder of 2017 and into 2018 before we sort of started to get some more credibility in the market and, you know, had a proper marketing funnel and a budget and all those other things that need to be done. Yeah. On the, the back of that sort of hard work and, and early um, effort, you know, you grew 69% last financial year, became one of the fastest growing new businesses in Australia. So was it just yeah. continued momentum? Was there something once you had a bit of scale, you were able to, to ramp up? What, what what drove that sort of rapid growth? And then what was it like, you know, managing that scale of, you know, service delivery, client onboarding, um, staff hiring? Yeah. What was that sort of process like with that rapid growth? Yeah, mate. Geez, when you talk about those numbers, I sort of look. I'm extremely humble. I'm not. I'm not. I'm driven by serving people, and the numbers take care of themselves. Literally, I didn't even know we were, we were being recognised by the B at BRW you know, for the fast growing business until my team come back and was like, "Hey, Robbie, guess what? We've you know, <laughs> like, oh, cool. Like, I care, but I don't care. Let mm. me just be very clear about that. I know it's good for the business. I know it's good for the branding, but respectfully." The military people don't know or care how much we've grown. You know, yeah. I, I don't. I don't publicise what our annual annual revenue is per year. I'm not a, not a charity per se. So I'm more focused on how much we can help our own clients and how much money they're making, etc. That that's my sole focus. Whilst taking care of a business on the back end here. But yeah. So I knew I knew straight away that this, even though I remember I had quite a few drinks one night with a mate of mine who runs a similar business down in Sydney. And he's like, you know, and we're having beers out the back in the swimming pool. And he goes, warm, balmy night here in Queensland. He goes, mate, when you have five, six, seven, 10 staff, 15 staff, he goes, you know, you're going to have to put systems and processes in place and have your policies and all. I'm like, I don't want the hassle of the staff. I'm just going to stay <laughs> lean. I'm just going to, it's going to be mm. me and maybe one or two other people. Like you need a couple of key people because we provide <laughs> that, that full project management of building the houses for our clients in conjunction with the builder. So it's like, Find client, coach client, educate client, find property for client. That's the bit that I did. And then we got someone else in that was able to project manage the build and then find the tenants and all the stuff on the back end. And I was determined to stay quite small, you know, and, and if we're if we if we're helping 10, 15, 20 people per year, then that's you know, that's good enough for my for my wife and I to, to lead a good little lifestyle business. What the trigger was, Derek, is that it became a drug. Not the drug of getting money off people. It became a drug when for helping people. Like when you get to the end of a build and people are like, mate, I love that. Thank you so much. The house you bought for me is like perfect. There's like tenants are taking very good care of it. We've got a valuation done. We've made X amount of dollars. How can I do that again? I'm like, whoa. Like it was like that was, you know, and then we're, we're talking end of 2018, probably start of 2019 is when we really, because for the whole, for the, the whole of 2017, we probably helped about 15 or 20 clients. I think 2018, we helped about 30. 2019, we helped 60. 2020, we like we, we doubled in doubled in, in the amount of people we helped for three years in a row until we got to those numbers that you just you just spoke about then. And we grew from two people to 16 people in effectively four years. So that's you know, that's a that's a lot of people that that, that we're grown to. So, but you know what? Other business owners of mine have said, have said this to me from the start. The hardest part about being a business owner is not your niche market or not selling a product or not managing cash flow. It's managing people. And even though we've tried to be as selective as we possibly can during the recruiting process, even though let's call it half of the team here, probably two thirds of the team are ex-military, as is evidenced in the military, I guess one of the misconceptions that might be out there in the, from a, on the civilian's point of view is about the military is 
everyone's a good person, everyone's a good bloke, or everyone's a good a good a good chick, a good lady. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There are some dickheads in the military as well, <laughs> you know, and and many people probably think I'm one of them, and that's fine. <laughs> we can't you can't be friend, friends with everybody, but yeah, the HR element or the human resource element of running a business or being in the military. If there are people that you think are substandard or or dickheads in your workspace, ladies and gents, guess what? They exist in the military as well. Even though there's a selection process, even though there's a filter process, people, you know, when you when you chuck a bunch of people from a whole different ranges of backgrounds and cultures into one workplace, there's going to be conflict every now and then. There's going to be differences of of opinion, and there's going to be people that stay, and there's going to be people that you know come and go. So, you know, even though we've got many people here in the business that have been here from the start or like, you know, six months later, we recruited effort. You know, so, we, you know, we, we recruited steadily over that time. It's been a you know, little bit of revolving doors as well. And you know what? Welcome, welcome the business, mate. As a business owner, if you are not prepared to put the time and effort and energy into trying to recruit people and the time and effort and energy into firing people, don't start a business or just just be a solopreneur and have a job. <laughs> Does that sound pretty familiar, mate? <laughs> yeah, they're def- definitely a common story. And I think as well, even you can have the right person, but it's just your size business type of business isn't the right place for that person so that they might go to the next place and be fantastic and someone else might come to your place and, that, and that's where they'll shine yeah. or the collection of the other people in the place. So like I said, so many variables, even if you have a great person. Were there lessons from your time in your military service that you think gave you an advantage in, you know, in in the business world? And then were there some that maybe you had to relearn that people that never, you know, were always a civilian sort of already knew? Or what were some of those interesting crossover lessons between those two worlds? I'll do the second one first, if you don't mind. In the military, I was never exposed to it. And I I did half my career as as a soldier corporal sergeant and then the other half of my career as a captain and major so i had a very i had a wider span and half my career in the normal army and the other half in the special forces i had a wider span than most others and i'd never come across the concept of marketing and advertising how is it that you create an avatar and provide a message to solve a problem and then therefore provide a solution to that problem being your service or product to someone who's willing to pay for it like that concept is is unless you do a, an MBA, you just I was never exposed to that. So I guess that was one thing I needed to grasp really, really quickly was when you know that you've got the best service in your industry, if no one else knows about it, Derek, no one's how can anyone use it? So that, I guess that was the from a if you're if you're talking to me about a a very critical marketing function that I had no idea about when I was in the military, that that would be it. The whole sales thing is a, is probably in the same bucket. But once I wrap my head around the fact that once you are genuinely providing a service to someone and solving a problem they have, you're not selling anything. You're just doing that. There needs to be an exchange of value to make make sure that that sort of takes place. I've not sold anything to anyone for years and years. And I reckon it was probably about 18 months or so to when I was working with that other firm. I went and see my boss. I'm like, well, I think we we're just doing a quarterly sales meeting or something. I said, you know what? I don't actually, like the genuine and authentic conversations I've been having with people lately about them buying a property using our services. I don't actually think I've sold any, I don't feel like I'm selling to anything to anyone. He's like, that's a moment for you right there when you don't feel like you're selling anything to anyone, yet they're willing to give you the money for the services they're going to provide. That's, you know, so yeah, I guess, yeah, marketing and sales, definitely. Some of the strengths, of course, mate, is all about, planning. It's about understanding risk. It's about putting timelines and decision points and like sync matrices, as we call it, or or your viewers will probably know as a Gantt chart, put that in place and allows people to visualize what the next steps are going to be. If we get to this point and a flow chart, if it doesn't happen that way, we go this way. So I guess I've been able to build a business model and refine the business model and, and reasonably well articulate it to internal and external stakeholders and clients and and team members about who we are what we're doing where we're going so yeah that that planning element to it and i guess just the overall command and leadership presence so every every quarter we go off site we review the last quarter we plan the next quarter i do a founder's address you know we open up the floor for any quick like it's very interactive as far as that goes so yeah planning risk management and leadership would i'd, I'd say would be the three things 
that I've been able to take from my military career that have significantly contributed to business success. And the other thing I'd say, which is probably icing on the top of that, is the will, the will to win. The military taught me to not lose. And regardless of the circumstances around what's going on in the business and what's going on with, you know, whatever, when you've got that right mindset, dare I say, when your axons are bloody firing properly and you just have that will to win, not that blind desire and win at all costs and tear everyone else down. I'm not talking about that. But when you have a genuine desire and will to win, no matter what adversity you face, you'll find a way to manage it. Yeah, and so zooming out from sort of the property space to look at sort of entrepreneurship more generally, and again, military side, civilian side, both, what do you see entrepreneurs in Australia doing well? And where do you think they're leaving room on the table for growth or extra opportunities that they're not capitalising on? Mm, interesting. Like I said, I was very fortunate with that other business owner. He used to take me down to a group called Business Blueprint run by Dale Beaumont, amazing business owner, great mentoring service and business. So I've been exposed to lots and lots of different entrepreneurs over the years. And then I joined another another one with Kerwin, Kerwin Ray. And now we're working with Jack Delosa at, at the Entourage, part of his Elevate crew there. It actually fascinates me. Here's, here's one, of the, one of the things that I've observed with, with entrepreneurs. You may or may not pick it up, but I'm extremely passionate about who we are and what, what we do. And that's, this is my little lunchbox. I'm like, why wouldn't people be passionate about property? Why wouldn't someone want to come into a business and, and get to know clients, understand their circumstances, diagnose what might be a solution for them, put an action plan in place and go and help them do it, right? From a financial freedom perspective. I love it. I love it. Even though I loved my time in the military, Derek, in all, in all frankness, mate, this is my calling this is why I was put here is to help people do this. I've seen so many other business, so many other Australian entrepreneurs show so much passion about another industry that I have no interest in. We're talking about grout in tiling. <laughs> We're talking about concreting business. We're talking about bloody the little trinkets that like the little the little spoons that Nana used to buy when she goes to bloody Ballarat. I know I know a business owner, like I know a business owner who's a multi-million dollar business owner. She sells bits that go in horses' mouths. Mm. And you should hear her talk about that shit. <laughs> and I'll say that shit. In a, no, in no, a, but yeah, that, that's her her dream and her that's you know, her that dream. So her, I, yeah. I think it's one thing, mate, that entrepreneurs in Australia have uh, I've observed anyway is taking their passion and turning it into their profession and making a living out of it and not stopping until it's sort of succeeding. So that's on the positive side. People are turning mm. a niche into a commercial success. What about things where, uh, so, so where are people struggling then? Are they second guessing, oh, no one would want to buy this? Who cares about, you know, horse equipment? Or are they that they swapping too quickly? Or are they like, is it the hiring and scaling? Is that, what do you see some of those mm. things that aren't going right for a lot of entrepreneurs, you know? I don't know specifically, but this is what I think contributes to business failure. And I relate it back to what I was doing in the failed property adventures I did before I started this, is that people start a business and they don't get any help. People start a business and they don't know what the functions are, the key functions of a business are, and how those functions are interconnected and interdependent with each other, what the flow of the business model should look like, and then, of course, some um, accountability from having a coach. So uh, I'm, I'm not a business coach, far from it, even though veteran on, entrepreneurship and, and, and coaching of though and educating and coaching of, the, of young men and women that are still very happy in the military one day will have that realisation like I did or an opportunity come past their desk that they'll get out one day and they want to go and start their own business. Please, ladies and gents, do not do it by yourself. Find someone who can coach, guide and mentor you through it because your chances of success are going to be so much greater. It's, it, it's the one of the greatest gifts that that other, other business owner gave me was the value in getting a business coach on board. Tamara and I, my wife and I, have spent a couple of hundred thousand dollars in business coaching since Axon started. Every single cent has been worth it by miles. Yeah, so I think, that's, I think it's, it's one thing that Aussies are not very good at, myself included, back in the day, 
is asking for help for an endeavor that they don't know everything about. You know, the whole she'll be right, let's have a crack mentality. <laughs> yeah. When you're talking about starting a business and the intricacies that go into it, don't do it without getting some assistance. Yeah. Yeah. So, so great sort of meta theme of whether you're investing, whether you're, you know, your own um, yeah, financial investment, your business, like get help, get advice, go to the experts. Or, you know, get feedback at the very least from other people. Invest in yourself. Yeah, invest in yourself fundamentally in, in your, your education. So for someone who's you know, 18 to 20 years old, you know, maybe they're like you at sort of, you know, 16, 17, where you don't know what to do. The family's saying, well, you have to do something. What advice mm. would you give to them? Do you think the Army um, ADF is still a good option? If so, for who? Do you think, you know, people you know, is it better to work for an entrepreneurial company? Like, like what sort of advice? Someone who's a bit confused, a bit lost in that sort of, you know, pivotal 18 to 21-year-old. I mean, they've just graduated, but they're not sure what, where to go, what to do. What, what do you say to those yeah. people, civilian or non-civilian, who are trying to mm. figure out what to do? Mm. <laughs> it's funny. We can't change the past. The past has made us who we are, but I'd still go back and change a lot of things. But then I'd be scared if I, you know, those you know movies <laughs> that go back in time. You're like, oh, if you make one little change here, yeah, the butterfly effect, the butterfly changes this, and yeah, yeah, divergent effect down the track. So um, I don't ever want to do that. Obviously, mm -hmm. I probably never will. <laughs> Not pro oh, yeah. Who knows what minority report matrix shit's going to come our <laughs> way in the next bloody fifteen years or so? But but what what would I say? So in answer to your first question, I have previously done and will continue to do encourage mums and dads to send their sons and daughters to the, to the Defence Force. I think and Australia doesn't have the facilities of scale, but if we sent so many more of our youthful generation into an organisation like the military, I don't need to listen. Life would be better. Life would be different, put it that way. What would I say to an 18? I would say this. You're going to make mistakes. You're going to make lots of them. Try not to make the same mistake too many times. You know, the saying, don't make the same mistake twice. I've done a few <laughs> terrible things that have not been the second time around. Mm -hmm. But at the same token, I'd let them know that if you have the right mind, if you have a right positive mindset and you're generally a good person, everything's going to be okay. Excellent. So what about going back to Axon Property Group? Where do you see the, the next sort of five to 10 years? I mean, are you looking, like I said, continue scaling and helping more people? Is being an employer of choice for, you know, former uh, defence personnel a big part of the vision? Is it other, or, or like I said, helping them into their own entrepreneurial sort of ventures in some other indirect way or outside of the sector? What, what's that sort of uh, medium-term vision for the business and where you want to go? In short, the medium-term vision is consolidate 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 we've grown so much i did i did on the whiteboard like the exponential <laughs> like the the commodity curve and when i did my founders address at the start of the new financial year so when we're talking like in the first week of july last year i went around the room i went right you've been here three months you've been here five months you've been here seven months you've been here one year there's a room there's a group of 15 or 16 of us and there was Almost half the people there that have been less have been there for about a year or so, or less than two. So, because we've grown so quickly, of course, and we, you know, bought on our own videographer, bought on our own content manager, bought on our own finance person, like you know, so we we got all these other ancillary people that weren't defence background. That, of course, you need to bring into the culture, and, it, and it, it's, it's like it's a bit of a Brady bunch mix and match of people as well, which is totally fine and something that we'll continue to do. But yeah. Depth and breadth is what it's all about for us now. Like we've cracked the code and we can help 150 or 200 people a year use our services. We're not breaking ourselves in the meantime. We're, the land, land availability across Australia right now is a big issue. So we don't, we, I don't need to have 500 new people per year trying to buy blocks that if there's, you know, there's only a, a finite amount anyway. But yeah, I really want to grow the business from a, a depth and breadth perspective to make ourselves fat make ourselves bulletproof, ready to go again. And, you know, when, when that time comes whereby the crazy demand and the market conditions in the property sector right now settles down a little bit, I've built a platform and I've built a group of systems and I've built a cash runway and I've built a robust business model whereby we can go on a recruiting drive and we can launch and we can bring them in and we can train them and boom, 
and then we'll go on another sort of growth spurt from there. So yeah, mate, it's something I'm really proud of is that we've we have grown a lot over the last few years. And one of the sayings that's ringing in my ears at the moment, mate, is this, is that when you've got so much, you've got so much more to lose. And I ain't going to lose any of it. And we're just going to consolidate and just, you know, do all those things that I just listed there to make sure we're bulletproof going forward. Because, and this is something I'll leave you with as well. As a fifth-year Special Forces Major and and when you command troops in and out of Afghanistan, there's a whole lot of pressure on you and responsibility and sure, you get chosen to do that, and, and it's an amazing thrill when you're when you're doing it. You need to be able to equip, raise, train, and sustain your troops, maintain morale, achieve the mission, get as many less people as you can killed, and bring all your stuff back home again. But you don't have to pay them. The government pays them. The government used to pay me. As a business owner now, and I'm not trying to be too dramatic about this, right, but I've got a unique perspective that maybe some of your other hosts or guests and listeners in the real world, I need to be able to equip, raise, train, sustain, maintain morale and do and execute Axon's business model, and I've got to pay them as well. So the, the, the responsibility I feel as a CEO is 10 times more than what I ever felt as a special forces major because I also need to make sure that those other 15 people out there, if this business falls, like if I don't turn up, if I don't perform, if the business reputation goes down the gurgle or some other catastrophic event occurs, it's not my life that's ruined. Their lives are ruined as well because then they've got to go find another job. And a lot of them have joined the military straight out of the military to come and join the business. And then there's another veteran on the street that doesn't have a, a freaking job. So, mate, I'm um, I'm red hot with that stuff that, yeah, I'm just going to make sure that everything we – and that's why we're going to go into consolidation mode, Derek to make ourselves bulletproof that no matter what happens in the future from a property market dynamics perspective, everyone's going to have a job, everyone's going to get paid and everyone's going to be okay. And would the ADF ever do any sort of like, not to recommend you, but is there any potential partnerships or they're not allowed to engage with those sort of they're not allowed to, mate. commercial they're- things and they wouldn't want to even if they could? And- yeah. Years and years ago, and I sat there as well, there's, you know, Oh mate, Fast Freddy from bloody Fast Freddy's financial services to get up there and talk about financial stuff to us, you know. And there was he was the mate of the COs and you know whatever else. So there was there was an old boys club back then that used to have that it used to be property spruikers, quite frankly, get up on stage and sell sell financial products to soldiers. And that's that's been wiped off the wiped off the schedule for many many years. And unfortunately, many 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 defence members have bought houses in in areas that have gone very very much down down in value so yeah there's this wonderful thing called the internet now mate i don't need to go and talk in front of everyone i can talk to them on this i can talk to them through through social media through zoom through facebook live through whatever so yeah i've i've navigated my way around that that issue and i can and i can talk to people that are all around the country Mm -hmm. from the comfort of my own studio i don't need to travel i don't i don't need to set up the chairs i don't need to call them (laughs) hey derek have you got any dietary requirements? Do you know where the parking is? I don't have to do any of that shit anymore. And I imagine it's such a tight-knit group as well. Once you build trust, have success, they refer on. And like you said, it's sort of uh, you don't need to go top down and sort of get everyone. You get a few and that builds and expands yeah. as you you know do a good job. It's one of the things, mate, as we finish off, that's been a huge contributing factor to Axon's growth is the amount. So for the last let's call it two years. We track every single lead, every single client, like the, the, um, the metrics and everything of the marketing funnel is extremely sophisticated now, which is great. And we use a lot of technology tools to help us do that. And some good old fashioned spreadsheet that we enter it in ourselves. 70% of all of our business over that last period has either been through direct referral or repeat business. And when you're talking about people buying five, six, $700,000 houses that take 18 months to build, and that we're flirting with their financial future, the fact that people get to the end of that and not only do they want to tell their mates about it, but they want to do it again. I'd love anyone who's listening to this to get in contact with me and say they can beat that stat. And I'm not, I'm not comparing myself against anyone else, but from a property industry or business industry stat, like I, I bet a lot of other business owners would love to have 70% of their business with a you know a ticket item like we have that people want to refer their friends or come back and do it again. So it's yeah, we've worked very hard. It was one of the 
It was the greatest risk that we took, which was the greatest reward. In mid-2018, we turned off talking to, because I was also doing civilians and defense members, just like I was taught back in the other firm. But one of, the, one of my business coaches, again, get a coach on board. He's like, you guys are so strong. I already had myself and a couple of other people by then. You guys are so strong in the military. Like, don't worry about talking to mum and dad investors. Just talk to the military people. Just create your avatar and go do that. And we did that, mate, and the, everything changed from there. So, yeah, but, but that's the double-edged sword is this. You screw one of them over, and like as the saying goes, and Aussies are like this, you have a great service, you'll tell five people. You have a bad service, you'll tell 50 people. So it's almost like we've been on a knife edge as far as delivering the type of service we can ever since we started to this day that we don't want to ever screw anyone over. And because then they'll, you know, the reputation of Axon will be dead in the water and we won't be going anywhere. Excellent. Any final words or thoughts you'd like to leave the audience with? Well, what would I do? I mean, I just, I, I reflect a lot, mate, on what if I was still in the military? You know, a lot of, lot, of the, a lot of my peers have now gone on to be unit commanders and they're now, you know, full colonels and maybe even one-star one star brigadiers. And I, I bravo them to the cows come home. And they've now done 25, 27, 30 years in the military, right? And they're, they're now getting further and further down the track where it's going to be harder and harder for them to find a job on the outside because that's just the way of the world, right? And I sometimes I, I'm not jealous is not the right to, but I just wonder where I would have got to. And it's a vanity metric from a, you know, what, what rank may I have been able to achieve, which means zero on the outside. You don't walk around as ex-Brigadier Turner or I don't walk around as ex-Major Turner here in the civilian world. No one, no one gives a poo. But one thing I have been able to create since leaving the military is that we're just about to tick over Derek. $150 million worth of wealth that we have injected into the defence community. So the purchase price, no growth attached to it, purchase price only of all of the houses that have been completed by our services to our clients is just about the tip over $150 bucks. We've got a little, we've got a live ticker on our website. And mate, one thing I do know is that sure, I might've been a, high, a higher ranking officer in the military right now, but there's no way that I would have been able to have that influence on that many people. It makes me happy, mate. It makes me really happy. Excellent. Thanks so much, Robert. Good on you. Thank you for listening to the Future of Australia podcast. If you liked the episode, please subscribe and leave a review in iTunes. To learn more about the Future of Australia project, check out futureofaustralia.com. To reach out to Derek directly, you can email derek at futureofaustralia.com. That's D-E-R-E-K at futureofaustralia.com.